Well, let's stay standing and let's take our Bibles once again and open them up to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, we will be wrapping up our look at Romans 13 this morning as we continue working through this wonderful book. We're going to read verses 8 through 14. We'll be looking specifically at verses 11 through 14 today, but we'll begin in verse 8. So listen as I read, and remember that this is the word of God to us this morning. God speaks to us through these words. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Father, we are awed at the fact that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have revealed your will to us. We thank you for this word this morning where you are teaching us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that he would work through the preaching of your word, that we would be instructed this day on what you would have us to do as your people, as people who are the children of light through Christ. We pray for this In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, you've seen the scenes. You've seen the coverage on television throughout your lifetime and much over the past couple years. Riots, unrest, protests that perhaps begin peaceful but turn violent. And one of the things that are very common to these as we watch them unfold on our television screens or our other screens that we have all around us, uh, one of the things that are very common to those is that these things usually happen at night. Even the ones that begin peaceful, they seem to start out okay, but as soon as the sun goes down, things turn ugly. It's also the case that if you were to walk into a bar in the middle of the day, if they're open at all, you'll find them very sparsely occupied. But when the sun goes down, they fill up. Gang activities, other violent acts seem generally to take place at night. Nighttime just seems to be the time when bad things happen, when immorality takes place, where, when evil and dangerous activity takes place. There's a reason that a lot of people are hesitant to go out at night. And we could 
postulate many reasons for this, but I think one of the most important reasons that these things happen at night is that because darkness hides what we do, what people do. Light exposes, darkness conceals. And I think that because of that, it is no coincidence that one of the most often used images of good and evil in the scriptures are the images of light and darkness. Light is good. Darkness is evil. God himself is the source of all good. He is the source, therefore, of light. He is light. And in him, John said, there is no darkness at all, meaning that he is pure, he is good, he is righteous, he is holy. And there is no taint of of imperfection in any of his attributes, no taint of imperfection in his moral character. Christ is, as John also wrote, the light of the world, who shines in the darkness, who dispels darkness. And those who love God, those who love Christ, love the light, the Bible says. Those who don't hate it. Paul says that they prefer the darkness. John wrote that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. Because their works are evil. He goes on and says that everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. That's in John 3. And of course, as Jesus himself wonderfully proclaimed, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, he says, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Even we, beloved, we have been taken from the kingdom of darkness, Peter tells us, and we have been placed in the light which is Christ. We are now children of light, children of the day. We are living in in the dawn of the age which will one day when Christ returns be brought to full, complete fruition, and we will live in the eternal noonday of the glory of the presence of him who is the light. Here in these final verses of chapter 13, Paul uses that imagery as he sets another bookend on another section of the book of Romans. And he sets this bookend in an interesting way. Let's look at the, the first end uh, back in Romans chapter 12. Remember, this is where Paul began laying out what is our response to be to what God has done, what he has done in the past. In chapter 12, in verses 1 and 2, we read and looked at this. The Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He told us there that in light of what is past, namely God demonstrating his great mercy toward us. by And and it goes all the way back through Romans chapter 3 by forgiving us all of our sins, past and present and future, and justifying us in his sight for all time through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the work of Christ, 
taking our human nature, living his entire life perfectly in line with God's will, God's law, loving man perfectly, loving God perfectly as we are called to do, and then him dying a cursed death on the cross specifically to bear not his own sins, he didn't have any, but to bear your sins, Christian. Grounded on all of that that we have taken so long to look at as we've been going through this, grounded on that and nothing but that work of Christ, God has then given the free gift of reckoning your sins to Christ and His righteousness to you so that now you are declared perfect in God's sight by God. And all of that received by faith alone. In these opening two verses, Paul said that in light of those mercies of God, he says that we are to live in a certain way, offering up ourselves as a living sacrifice of gratitude, of thanksgiving for what he has done. And Paul then has detailed how we are to live out that living sacrifice, how we are to be that living sacrifice in chapters 12 and 13. By not being conformed to the world, but by being transformed through the renewal of our minds, by thinking properly about ourselves and prioritizing others, by exercising the gifts and the abilities that God, by His grace through His Holy Spirit, has given to us, specifically exercising those in the context of the church, by loving others, both those inside and those outside of the church, loving them sincerely, loving them sacrificially, not seeking vengeance on those who do us wrong, leaving that to God, and being submissive even to the means by which God in part dispenses His wrath towards those through submission to the secular governing authorities. And all of that, as Paul tells us in verses 1 and 2, all of that because of what God has done, because of what is in the past. That's the first bookend. Now we come this morning to the other bookend. In these last verses of chapter 13, Paul shifts that. And he gives us an additional, as if we need an additional motivation, he gives us an additional motivation to, or for living according to God's word. A a wonderful and powerful and glorious motivation. One that we don't always think about. That motivation is basically this, that we are to conduct ourselves in light of what is and especially in light of what is coming. See, in verse 1 of chapter 12, it is living in light of what is past. Now, in chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, it is living in light of what is present and especially what is future. And in these verses, what Paul does first in verse 11 and then the first part of chapter 12, he describes the time in which we live. And then in the last part of verse 12 and then through verse 14, he tells us the way that we are to live. First, he's going to speak about the time in which we live. He begins there in verse 11 by saying, besides this, so this ties it to what he's been talking about before. The things that he said that we are to do, and if we look back into those, we see that it has been saying most recently that we are to love. 
we are to love one another. And if we take it back to the beginning of verse 12, we see why we are to love one another, because God has first loved us. So in addition now to doing all of these things because of God's mercy, because of what God has done in the past, now Paul is going to tell us what the time is now and how we are to react to that, how we are to act, because of what time it is. And you know that this is also, he says, the time for you to do these things that I've just been telling you, not just because of what God has done, but because of what he's going to do. He says, besides this, he says, you know the time. What does he mean when he says, you know the time? Sometimes it's not quite clear. Thankfully, though, in in case it's a little fuzzy to us or unclear as to what time it is, He gives us an explanation. He gives us three explanations, three descriptions of the time in which we live and what is to be done because of that. First, he says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. That's what time it is. It's the proper time for you to wake up. And of course, what we need to wake up from is not physical sleep, necessarily. Don't see anybody there quite yet. But spiritual sleep, figurative sleep. This is a a symbol, it's a metaphor for spiritual insensitivity, spiritual grogginess. The the picture of sleep is, is appropriate. When you are asleep, physically, you're not sensitive to stimuli. Things can happen and you're not aware of them because you're asleep. Danger can sneak up on us while we're asleep, can't it? We don't hear the, the intruder rattling the door. We don't hear the baby crying. We don't smell the smoke. We don't see the, the beginnings of a fire starting. So danger can sneak up on us. Also, when you're sleeping, you're not productive. Not really at all. Now, sleep is necessary. The more they learn about sleep and what's going on in our bodies while we sleep, the more we learn how important it is. So it's very important, but it's not productive. And to indulge in too much sleep, the Bible says positively, is foolish. Read Proverbs. You'll see that the the Bible, and especially the book of Proverbs, has much to say about the sluggard. None of it's good. Well, spiritual sleep is the same. When we're asleep, spiritually, we are spiritually unresponsive. In a spiritual la-la land. Not acting like we should, not, not responding to the things that we need to respond to as we should, positive and negative things, not responding to the Holy Spirit working in our lives through the Word, not sensitive to approaching danger, not productive in the work that God calls us to do. And Paul says in in relation to all of that, Paul says that the hour has come, that it is the proper time, it is the necessary time to wake up from that. Don't put it off, he says. The hour is now to wake up. Don't hit the spiritual snooze button. Get up, wake up, roust yourself. 
If that first explanation encourages us to wake up, then the second that he gives tells us to look up. And it describes to us more about this time, about this hour in which we live. He says, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Here, especially is this idea of our our motivation to holy, appropriate, Christian living based, not on the past, but based in the future. That something is, is looming, something is approaching, or we are approaching something. Do all of this because salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now what does he mean by that? That could be a confusing statement. How, you might ask, can my salvation be nearer now than it was when I first believed? Don't we have our salvation when we first believed? Well, yes and no. You certainly have salvation as as sort of money in the bank when you first believed. In fact, because God works first in your salvation, you actually have the money in the bank before you believe. We could look back to God's work in eternity past as He looked and set His love upon you before you were even you, before anybody was even anybody. We could see that God, as He chose to put us in Christ and to put us in his eye and to set his love upon us that at that point he puts that great deposit of your salvation in the bank awaiting only for time to come so that he will work it out. Your salvation, beloved, is secure and complete in the mind of God from before the foundation of the world. But you're coming into actual present possession of all of the aspects of your salvation comes to you piecemeal. Comes a little here, a little there, in various ways. Remember the the idea of salvation is a very broad term, kind of a general term that encompasses several different aspects. First, the Holy Spirit works salvation in you through the gospel. He causes you to recognize your sinfulness, your need for salvation. He sovereignly changes your heart. And He brings you, spiritually speaking, to life for the first time. Awakening you to your need for Christ. He gives you, the Spirit does, the gifts of faith and repentance. He unites you to Christ by His work. He then, God then justifies you based on the work of Christ and you receive that gift of salvation by the faith that he has given you. Then he graciously adopts you as his own child and counts you as his own, a member of his eternal glorious kingdom. That same Holy Spirit who caused you to be born again takes up permanent residence in you. And all of that happens in the first instant of your salvation. That, beloved, 
if you're a Christian, that is all in the past. In that sense, you have been saved. So that's not what Paul is speaking of here when he says that our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. But there's more to salvation than that. The Spirit who now dwells in you, Christian, works in you and begins to, as Paul says, conform you into the image of Christ. He begins through the Word of God to cause you to put to death the desires and the actions that belong to your old life and to to put on those things that are appropriate for God's people. He oh so slowly but oh so surely begins to make you like Christ your Savior and your Master, your Lord. He, the Holy Spirit, works in you what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. His fruit, He works in you. He transforms you by the renewing of your mind. In that sense, and those are the things that are happening now as you sit here this morning, Christian, in that sense, you are being saved. Well, that doesn't, also doesn't sound quite like what Paul's talking about here when he says our salvation is, is nearer to us now than when we first believed. But there's still more. One day, Christ will return. Amen? Lord, come quickly. And when he does, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and be raised. Your body, Christian, will be raised, will be glorified. The mortal will put on immortality. The perishable will be raised imperishable. You will have a body that is fit for eternity. You will be confirmed before the world as a child of God, and by the grace of God and the work of Christ, you will be ushered into the eternal kingdom of God. God will renew the the creation, ushering in, creating the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and that will be your dwelling place, Christian. Then your salvation will be complete, and you and your glorified body and perfected soul will enjoy the unimaginable blessings of being in the presence of God and in the presence of all of the saints throughout all time. The river of life, the tree of life will be yours. There will be no tears, there will be no sorrow, there will be no sin, no lack of anything, no frustration, no loneliness, no guilt, only eternal and infinite bliss and blessing we will enjoy because of the grace of God and through the work of Christ. And that... That aspect of this that is yet in the future, that is what Paul is talking about when he says that that salvation is nearer now than it was when we first believed. And it's not just our salvation that's in view here. It's bigger than than sort of an individualistic thing. Oh, that's part of it. But notice that the text doesn't say your salvation is nearer. But he says, for salvation is nearer than when we first believed. 
This is the final consummation of, of all of creation. Your salvation, yes, but also the salvation in that sense of every saint. It is the fact, the, the event, the eschatological event of salvation, the consummation of the kingdom of God that is in view. And since that takes place, though, at the same time as your salvation in that latter sense, both are probably in view here. And here, too, is motivation for us. This is the motivation that Paul gives for us to to wake up and to give ourselves up as living sacrifices to God, not only because of what he has done, that's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, but because of what is coming. Christ's glorious return is coming. The consummation of all of this, the fulfillment of God's glorious kingdom, that is coming. And since you have a part in that, you have a place in that, that motivates you like, a, like an athlete training for the big game. You know you are going to the big game. When Christ came the first time, he inaugurated this. He began to usher all of this in, though it is not yet brought to fulfillment. That awaits that day when he comes. But that glorious day, Christian, is coming. It is even at the door. A fact that Paul emphasizes at the beginning of verse 12 as we move on. He says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. The night is far gone, or the night is almost over, and the day is dawning. What a beautiful image Paul paints for us here. The first light of dawn is is showing. You know how that looks physically. I love to see it. I rarely do. But that time in the morning when dawn is dawning, And you know that the sun will soon break over the horizon. Now in Paul's day, of course, that was all the more important because the sun was the timekeeper. They didn't have the clocks. They didn't have watches. They didn't have iPhones. When the sun rose, it was time to get up. You rose and you started your day and you couldn't waste time. Both because soon the heat of the day would be upon you and because when the sun went down, the time for work was over. Jesus even referenced that in John 9, 4. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And the people would understand what he was saying. But Paul is saying here that since that day is fast approaching, because that consummate salvation is getting ever closer, and because we are even now in what the Bible calls the last days, they began when Christ came. Paul says, let us wake up. Let us look up. Let us live up to what God has called us to do. Because we are in the day, we are children of light. Children of the day, it is time for us to arise and to get on with the work that we are called to do as children of light. Listen to Paul say very much the same thing to the Thessalonian church. As he comes to chapter 5 of his first letter to them, he's just finished talking about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. 
talking there about that final day of consummation, but he says there that you are aware that that day will come without a warning, he says, like a thief in the night. And then continuing on with that theme, this theme that we talked about, about darkness and night, listen to what Paul writes to the church there. He says, but you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, he says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans 13. That that salvation is coming, and because of it, something is to be true. We'll see what that is more fully as we come, as we move from the time in which we live to the way we are to live. Our second point. In the second half there, verse 12 through verse 14, we have Paul's call to action for us this morning. Because of what's coming, that glorious day, that glorious future, that glorious eternity, Paul says, so then, middle of verse 12, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In these verses, Paul sort of puts together two of his and of other New Testament writers' favorite images of our sanctification, our growth in the Christian life. The first is putting off and putting on something. It's such a universally understandable picture. It's so appropriate. Paul says here in the middle of verse 12, So then, in light of what he has just said, in light of the time in which we live, he says, Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He says, Because God, because Christ has brought us into his marvelous light and made us, as First Thessalonians said, children of light, Paul says that we are to put on armor of light. But first, he says, we have to put something off. In fact, he says we have to cast it off, throw it off. Throw off the works of darkness. Throw off the evil that we once did. Again, that idea of darkness and light. And as I say, you know how fond Paul is of using this word picture of putting off and putting on, to describe both what is true of us in Christ and what should be true of us as Christians. He says to the Colossians, you have put off the old self. That's a statement of fact. That is what is true. And to the Ephesians, he then commands them and us, put off your old self. You have put it off positionally, now put it off practically. When we were in the earlier chapters of Romans, we kept coming back to that statement to live like what you are. That's what he's saying here. And here he says, cast off the works of darkness. 
the works that belong to the night, the works that belong to your formal life, former life. Tear them off. Throw them away as a disgusting thing, like a filthy shirt after you've cleaned out a sewer. Be done with it. Be disgusted with it and put it away. And then he says, put on the armor of light. That's interesting. He doesn't say put on the works of light. But he says put on the armor of light. And by saying that, he reminds us that we are in a battle. That we don't need just a clean shirt. We need armor. Paul talks about it, of course, in Ephesians 6 and tells us to put on the whole armor of God. In order to succeed, we we must not battle in our own strength, but we must be wearing the armor that God gives us. And notice, whether it is here or in Colossians or in Ephesians, putting off is always followed by putting on. Our sanctification, our Christian living, our growth and our, our walk is always a matter of replacement. Replace the old with the new, the evil with the good, the darkness with the light. Paul says to the thief in Ephesians chapter 4, he doesn't just say, let the thief no longer steal, but what does he say? But rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Replace thievery with graciousness. And he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Does he stop there? No, he says, but to speak a word that is good for building up, that it may give grace to those who hear, and so on. In verse 13, then, Paul will move to his other famous favorite picture for the Christian life. His first was putting off and putting on. The other that he now turns to is the idea of walking, of the Christian walk. Paul says in verse 13, let us walk properly, as in the daytime. Walk properly, walk appropriately as a Christian, walk as you should be walking. Isaiah 2.5 says, walk in the light of the Lord. Walk as becomes children of light. In John 11.9, Jesus said, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. To walk in the daytime, as Paul says here, is to walk in the light of Christ. It is to walk in the light of the world. It is to walk in the light of his word. That is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It is to walk and to live and to conduct ourselves as as those who are in the light, whom Christ has brought into the light. Salvation begun and salvation assured in us, awaiting full completion at that last day. In contrast, Paul tells us then how we are not to walk. What is not proper? What's not appropriate for children of light? And that is to walk in the darkness. That is to do deeds of darkness. And Paul gives us three examples here. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. He says, first, not in orgies and drunkenness. Now, the word orgies there has a connotation today that's not really, or at least not primarily, what it means, the Greek word that's used here. The original word refers to carousing. Um, Excessive eating and drinking and revelry in a bad way. 
People would have these great party, partying is a, is a good synonym for it. People would have these parties and, and drink and eat and then go out on the town and cause mayhem. It speaks of being out of control in regard to food and drink. The second speaks of being out of control in regard to sexual appetites. He says, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. And those two terms put together refers to just gross sexual excess. No borders, no boundaries. A lack of sexual restraint of any kind. He says, do not walk in that. And thirdly, this one's a little different, but it refers to being out of control in regards to wanting our own way. He says, not in quarreling and jealousy or strife and envy, discord, sowing discord, participating in discord. This would be the opposite of what we saw earlier in chapter 13 or chapter 12 where Paul calls us to genuine, sincere love, to looking to others. This is the opposite of that. And these three are the opposite of how we are to walk. They are deeds of darkness. And Paul then closes off this section with one more contrast. Returning now to sort of the the put off, put on, at least in the idea. He escalates this. Since now we are not to put on just the new man, we are not to just put on the armor of light, but we are to put on, he says, Christ himself. Expressed here with with his fullest, fullest title, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are to put on. The one who is our master, master, the one who is our savior, the one who is our Lord. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to embrace Christ and his character fully and self-consciously. It is to take fully to yourself the new man which you are and to live in accordance with that. The new man which Christ is. The the eschatological man, the man or the woman of the new day which Jesus has brought in and that he will bring to consummation. It is to be a kingdom man, a kingdom woman. It means to pursue Christ, to pursue Christ's likeness at every turn, in every situation, to use the means of grace that God has given regularly and consistently in order that we may grow in our faith and grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ that we may be more and more made like him. That's what it means to put on Christ. In Galatians 5.16, Paul uses a slightly different phrase that means the same thing. He says that we are to walk by the Spirit. By his prompting in and through his word in the scripture. It means the same thing to the degree that we are walking by the Spirit. To that degree we are putting on Christ. To the degree that we are filling ourselves with God's word and praying that we will be obedient to that word and walking in that way, to that degree we are putting on Christ. To put on Christ is very similar to what Paul said above when he said to let us walk properly as in the daytime. And I say that because the alternative is the same. In verse 13 he says we are to walk properly as in the daytime and not in a way that is out of control in regard to those things that we saw. And here he says we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Once again, you see that idea of replacement. As we put on Christ, we will, by definition, make no provision for the flesh. Because the flesh is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit is contrary to the flesh. And when he says flesh here, he's not just talking about our skin, our flesh, our meat. But this, remember, is Paul's term that refers to that principle in us that pulls us away from Christ. It's that 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 belongs to our old nature, our old man. It's that which will pull us away from Christ at every opportunity and pull us back towards what we used to be but no longer are. We are not to give any foothold to our own own nature. Paul earlier, earlier in the book of Romans said, you have died to sin, don't live any longer in it. That's what he's saying here. Don't give any chance for sin. Don't give any foothold for sin. Don't give, leave the door open to it. It is too strong, and you are too weak. Whatever tempts you to those things that you used to treasure, he says, do away with it. Don't just do away with the sin, but do away with the things that draw you towards that sin. Our victory over the flesh and the desires of the flesh is not found in our own resolve. It's not found in our own strength. You've all tried to do it in your own strength. We all have. But we quickly, when we do that, we quickly find how little strength we have against the flesh and the devil and the world. We must remember, though, that Christ has overcome the world that he has overcome the devil, that he has overcome our flesh. And so, Paul says, let us put on the armor of light. Let us put on Christ. Let us put on the light and reject the darkness. This is Paul's closing admonition to us here in this chapter. He's going to go on, obviously, and continue to teach us how we are to deal with one another. But for this, he tells us, that we are children of light. We live, in, we live in the day of light. Christ has come. The light has come. The end is dawning. You can see that change in the sky as it begins to lighten, knowing that the sun is coming, that the dawn is coming. In light of that knowledge, in light of that promise, in light of that, that, that assurance, beloved, let us put on Christ daily. And to that we all say, Amen. Father, we know that we cannot do these things on our own. We know that we are are too weak. But in our weakness, Lord, we find that you are strong. We find and are reminded once again that our, our salvation from beginning to end is through you is by you, is by your strength, is by your doing. And so, we, Lord, we pray that you would help us to put on Christ. Help us to look to the glorious future that we have because of your grace. And therefore, let us seek to do what you have called us to do. Let us live in the light. Let us walk in the light. We know that that will be a blessing for us and it will bring glory to you. And so we ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.